0: My name is Joshua, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be preaching from the passage that was read earlier from Mark chapter 15 and 16. So I invite you to turn your Bibles there, and if you don't have one, again, there's some on the back table. Feel free to make your way back there and grab a Bible. If you've been with us a while, you know that we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for over a year and a half, and today is the last sermon. This is the end. Um, We looked at the cross last week, and this week we were looking at the resurrection. And I have to admit that I have mixed feelings about it. Um, I have mixed feelings about preaching this sermon on the end of Mark. And the reason why is because I'm going to let you in on a little shop talk here. See, um, the resurrection, as you know, is a very big deal for Christianity. And we typically preach this sermon on Easter, And Easter Sunday is kind of like the Super Bowl Sunday for the church. And what that means is that when it's Super Bowl Sunday, you put your quarterback, your first string star quarterback in there. And so the lead pastor always preaches Easter Sunday. And at the past three churches I've been at, I've been an assistant pastor. And so every Easter Sunday, I'm geared up, And I don't get to preach. So now I get to preach the resurrection. So I've got like half a decade worth of illustrations (laughs) stored up. (laughs) Except, here's the problem We're, we're looking at the resurrection in the Gospel of Mark. No one preaches on Mark on Easter Sunday. You don't get the nail scarred hands in Mark, you don't get Jesus eating fish on the beach in Mark. You don't even get the Great Commission in Mark. You don't get the, the stories that we see in Matthew, Mark, in Matthew, Luke, and John. In fact, if you look at your Bible, you probably notice there's like an alternate ending listed there. There's probably some brackets and in an all cap letters says, the earliest manuscripts don't have anything after verse 8. And we read until verse 8. And feel free to research that on your own but I'm preaching this sermon as if verse 8 is the last verse of Mark. I think Mark meant to leave us at verse 8. And in fact, people who came later probably said, it can't end at verse 8. We need more. And included a lot of things that are very much in keeping with the other Gospels, but things that Mark didn't intend to have in his Gospel. And why would they do that? Why would you add to it? I think the reason why is because we like stories that resolve. We like knowing where we're going. See, I know this because every time I travel home for Christmas, um, which doesn't have, happen often anymore since I have kids, but when I go to my mom's house, there's one thing I can count on at Christmas. The TV's going to be on, and it's going to be on the Hallmark Channel. Now, the Hallmark Channel is devoted to nothing but simple, simplistic stories. So I play this game every Christmas. In the first five minutes of the movie, I try to predict the entire plot. <laughs> There's usually like a remarkably like, beautiful person who is the offspring of Santa Claus and has to, be, has to fall in love before Christmas Eve or Christmas is ruined for everyone. Um, and there's usually like a golden retriever involved somewhere, <laughs> and like probably 80% of the time I'm right. In the first five minutes, I know where the story is going, and much to my mother's chagrin, I I say this is the whole plot, and it's and it's right. <laughs> but there's also something else I like to do when I'm on vacation. I like to read fiction, and the stories that I like to read are often. Um, novels that are in this genre called magic realism. And magic realism is a genre, a style of literature that is, that is very realistic. It's a, it's a mundane world much like our own. It's not sci-fi. It's not a, a dystopian future or, a, or a, an imagined fantasy world. It's a world like ours. But in that world, you never know what's going to happen because the, the, the enchanted the supernatural can break in at any moment. In fact, one of, one of my favorite authors, the Japanese author, had a character that said it this way at the beginning of the story. He said um, to another character, please remember, things are not what they seem. If you go down this path, your world might suddenly change forever. In magic realism, things happen that change the way they see their world. And I think in some ways, the gospel of Mark is much more like a magic realism novel than a Hallmark Channel Christmas movie. See, Mark writes this story in a way that draws us in, that teaches us to follow Jesus, but it's not a predictable story. It doesn't end the way we think it's going to end. And that's true not just for those of us who know the stories and know the other gospels, but it's true for the original readers. And I think he did it to tell us what kind of story his gospel is. And I think he ended this way to teach us something about who Jesus is. And so that's what we're going to look at today is this ending that, um, that is perplexing. The end of the story. And we'll see um, that it teaches us something about how to live it out. So let's pray as we do that. Father, Son, and Spirit, we need you to give us your illumination, your wisdom. As we look at this text, as we look at your living word, speak to us. And may the meditations of our hearts and my words here today be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I think the first thing that Mark tells us about the story as we look at this ending is we see that it's a true story. It's true. The Gospel of Mark is describing something that really happened. I remember when I went to college years ago, I started to study um, other theologians, and I came across this German theologian from the 20th century named Rudolf Bultmann. And he said this famous quote, he said, we cannot use electric lights and radios in the event of illness avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means, and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. It's a famous quote. He says, if you're living in the modern world, the world that we live in with with lights and electricity and medicine, you can't believe in the resurrection. You can't believe in the miracles because miracles don't happen. And when we read this story, when we read the Gospel of Mark and we see Jesus healing the sick, We see him performing signs and wonders, and we see him rising from the dead. I think that's a temptation for us. Because Boltmann has a point. The point is in our world, people don't come back to life. Right? The only two things that, that are certain in life are death and taxes. Death happens to all of us, everyone dies, people don't come back to life. Bodies don't just get up and walk out of the morgue. Death is final. And so many people look at this story and they say, well, if, if people don't rise from the dead in my world, then I'm going to come to this story and, and say, anything supernatural can't be true. If it's supernatural, then it's not true. Yet, there's a problem with that. Mark doesn't, doesn't give us any other option. He's writing a true story. He's not writing a metaphor. He's telling us this is the truth, and there's only two options. Reject it or believe it. Now, Kyle mentioned this last week, but I think think it's worth mentioning again. You see throughout this passage, as soon as we started reading it, you see real people with real names from real places. You look at verse 39, you see a Roman centurion. Verse 40, 41, you see Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. In verse 42, 43, you see Joseph of Arimathea. And, and see, these names in the ancient world were more than just characters. See, in, the, in our world, we want to write a paper. You college students know this. You've got to cite your sources. You've got to turn in a bibliography. Well, in the ancient world, the, the names were the footnotes. These are the people that could verify your story. So you write these names, these eyewitnesses into the story, and it only takes one. It only takes one to discredit it. And so Mark is telling us in the way that he writes that this is a verifiable story. This is a story that you can take, and you can go to Joseph of Arimathea. You can go to mother, to, to Mary, the mother of... James the younger and Joseph, you can go to Salome, you can go to Mary Magdalene, you can ask them about this. And he wants you to. This is a verifiably true story. Go check the footnotes, check the people, and and it's not only just the fact that there are names that make it true, that make it verifiable. Look at the people that he's citing. He's citing the Roman centurion who m- murdered Jesus. He's citing a respected member of the council, the council that was an enemy of Jesus. He's citing women who came to the tomb. In that day, a woman's testimony was not admissible in court. These are not the type of people that you would use if you were making up a story. If he's making up a story, he's going to say, Peter and James and John were the ones who did this. If he's making up a story... He's going to use the credible people, but instead he uses the people who were actually there, and he does it because that's the way it happened. This story reads not like a metaphor, but like history. It reads like the kind of thing that you'd say if only if it were true. And without the resurrection, without the bodily resurrection, there is no Christianity. This is the truth of our faith. This is the bedrock of our faith. The poet John Updike put it this way. He said, Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted and the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through that door. Reject it or believe it. Those are your options. Those are the options that Mark gives you. St. Paul says it even more strongly. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection is a true story. It really happened in the flesh. And we have to see that. So when I talk about Mark being a storyteller, I'm not saying that he's making things up. He's telling a true story, but he's doing it in a way that draws us in, that has a purpose. And when we say that the resurrection is the true story, when we acknowledge that this really happened... You know, we're not saying that this is just the entrance exam to heaven. Well, you got to check this box off. you got to believe this if you want to be a Christian. Now, I do think that's true. You know, th- this, is, this is the central point of Christianity, as, as Paul has just told us. And um, you may say, well, that sounds a little harsh. You've got to believe in this to be a Christian. But this is part of what defines the historic Christian faith, you might say, okay, well, most of us here probably believe that, so why are you telling us? Well, I think we do believe it, but it's not just that, that Mark is an unfamiliar story to us. It's also that the resurrection is so familiar that we often don't, we're not shocked by it, we're not surprised by it, and we don't linger and contemplate its meaning. We don't realize that the resurrection of Jesus means that the beginning of Mark's gospel, when he says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the resurrection is vindicating Jesus. It's saying he is the Messiah. He was crucified and he's risen. And that means that the cosmic battle between good and evil is not inconclusive. There has been a victory. Jesus has won that victory and sin and death and the devil have lost and that, ter- that changes everything for us. That changes the way we see life and death. But it's not just something that's necessary to believe um, and live out. And just to say that it's true does not mean that it's easy to understand. So the second thing we see about Mark's story is that it's a confusing story. Um, like I said earlier, simple stories are memorable, but the lasting stories are the ones that make us think. And Mark is writing a story that makes us think. It's a challenging story with a challenging ending. Um, if, you're, if you're a film buff, if you like the movies, then you've probably seen the movie Citizen Kane. Um, it was made in 1941, and to this day, it's considered one of the best movies ever, ever made, and it still has 100% Rotten Tomatoes. Um, after like 80 years. And yes, I'm going to spoil it for you, but you've had 80 years to watch it almost. (laughs) Um, What is it about Citizen Kane? You know, it ends with this like quixotic, like perplexing scene where the protagonist yells, Rosebud! And for 80 years, no one really knows what it means. We're still trying to figure it out. People are still writing papers on it. See, the, the lasting stories, they don't just present us with a story that resolves and we can put it on the shelf. It's the lasting stories are the ones that challenge us, that make us think. We have to, we have to meditate on it. And Mark knows that. And so he gives us a story that ends in a confusing way. See, if you've, if you've been with this journey, there are two things throughout the sermon series that you've picked up on in Mark, um, and these two things add to this surprise ending. The first thing you've noticed as you've read the Gospel of Mark and listened to sermons on it is that in Mark, like, it's like an action story. Everything in Mark is happening immediately. The word immediately occurs like over 35 times um, in the Gospel of Mark, just in these 16 chapters. And it creates this sense of urgency as you're reading the story. In the very beginning, in chapter 1, Jesus, it it says he immediately saw the heavens open and the Spirit immediately descended upon him before immediately driving him into the wilderness. The disciples immediately left their nets and followed him right into the synagogue where Jesus immediately healed a man before immediately leaving. There's like all of this, like immediate, immediate, immediate. Everything is happening so fast. There's no sermon on the mouth. There's no, there's not a lot of, teaching of Jesus. It's an action-packed gospel. And so what you may expect when you come to the end of this story is you may expect that the women go to the tomb and the angel says, now go out and tell the disciples what's happened and go and tell everyone. And you would expect that it would say, and they immediately went and ran out. But instead what you have is the story slowing down after the cross. You see the women slowly making their way to the grave. You see that Mark is describing that the sun had risen. He's telling you the time of the day. They're talking about how they, you know, who will roll away from us? Who will will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They're going with spices to anoint his body, and yet we know Mark has already told us that that a woman had already anointed the body of Jesus for burial. So this story is slowing down as they make their way there, and it ends not with them immediately running out and telling everyone about it. It ends with them stunned, frozen in fear. And that gets to the second thing that you're probably surprised with if you're paying attention. Because the other thing you know about Mark is throughout Mark, there's this, there's this thing called the secret, the Markan secret. What we mean by that is that everyone who seems to, to know that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus warns them not to tell anyone. If he's just healed someone or fits the disciples, he says, Don't tell anyone. And so there's this, this like sustained shh all the way through the gospel. Don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. And you get to this passage and you get to the end, and the angel says, Go out and tell everyone. And you're like, yes, we can finally tell. But they, they don't. They don't tell anyone. In fact, it says, they said nothing to anyone, verse 8, for they were afraid. If you're, if you're paying attention to Mark, this is his rosebud moment. This is him saying, linger here. This is his way of drawing you in. And as the reader, you're supposed to put yourself into the story. As he draws you in, as he makes you think, as he challenges you with this surprise ending. This is not what we were expecting. Why does he do it? I think it's because the gospel of Mark is a story that demands a response. See, we, we get in these verses the first responses to the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And as, as we're surprised by this confusing ending, it draws us in, it makes us think. And we have to put ourselves in the story as we come to it and, and ask the question, what will my response be? What, how will I respond to the cross and the resurrection? And see, what he's already telling us is that Jesus is not who you expect him to be. See, the the women go into the tomb, the disciples, everyone, they they understood a triumphant Messiah, a Messiah who would throw off Rome and lead with a sword, but they didn't understand a crucified Messiah. They didn't understand who Jesus was going to be. And Mark is telling us, even as we come to the resurrection, do not think that this is something that you can get your mind around. That you can simply just assent to and say, uh huh, I believe that. He's saying, no, this is something that we cannot comprehend. We cannot get our minds around it. And the idea is not simply just to believe it cognitively, but action, response, live it out. And so it's not just information that he's giving us, it's an invitation. So, what is the response that, that we see in this text? Um, Christians throughout history have, have loved responses, right? We're Presbyterians, we're liturgical. We love a good responsive reading. And um, we know this responsive reading, right? We do it every Easter. This is where we get it. We see the angels saying, He is risen. And what are, we, what are they supposed to say? He is risen indeed. But they don't. That's not their response. They don't give us the, the responsive reading that we want. Instead, verse 8 says, They went out and fled the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And we end with, They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. See, in, it says that trembling and astonishment had seized them. And in the Greek, it's even more startling. It's traumas and ekstasis. Trauma and ecstasy had seized them. That's their response to the resurrection and the cross. And and did you notice that the angel says about Jesus, he says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth in verse 6, who was crucified, he has risen. See, even after the resurrection, he calls Jesus the crucified one. the the one from Nazareth. He's pointing you back to the cross. And they're saying, we can't, trauma and astonishment, trembling and ecstasy. We can't understand the cross and we can't understand the resurrection. And he ends us with silence and fear. And so what are we supposed to make of that? when we're expecting a profession of faith and we're expecting an immediate go-and-tell, and instead we get this trauma and ecstasy, I think what he's saying is that you need to linger with the crucifixion. You need to linger with the resurrection and put yourself in the story. What will your response be? See, the people that Mark is writing to are living in a time where they're very much afraid, And so they probably identify with these women. And Mark is asking the question, will you follow Jesus in spite of your fear? Will you follow him, as our sermon series has, has, as we've titled it, into the dark? And he's saying these women ended without telling anyone. Will you go and tell? Will you proclaim the crucified one that has also risen? Or will you be seized by fear and silence. He's telling his, his readers, even in the fear, even in the darkness, this is the time to follow Jesus. We all have darkness in our life. We all are approaching fears. And there is much in this world that we, where we can identify with the crucifix, crucifixion and the death of Jesus. Will you follow him even when you can't understand him? Will you follow him when it doesn't make sense? Will you follow him into the dark? Will you follow him with your fears? That's what Mark is asking us. And will you go out and proclaim the crucified one? Will you let your life reflect the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in a dark world? And see, the angel also tells them to go back and tell the disciples, and tell Peter, Peter, the one who had rejected Jesus, go and tell especially him to go meet me in Galilee. And if you've been paying attention with Mark, that's another clue on how we read this story. Because Mark starts the book in Galilee. In Mark chapter 1, 14 through 16, we see that Jesus proclaims the gospel for the first time in Galilee. And he chooses his disciples in Galilee. And there he says, follow me in Galilee. And so Jesus says, go back and meet me there. And he tells that to the disciples and he tells that to us as well as the reader. What he's telling us to do is go back and flip back to the first chapter and read it again. See, for Mark, Galilee is the place of discipleship. It's the place where you're called and it's the place where you follow Jesus. And so for Mark, he's saying, go back to chapter one, read it again. This is what it means to be a disciple, to be continually following Jesus, continually revisiting his story. And when you do what you see, even though he doesn't give us very many pictures of the risen Jesus. In fact, all we end with here is an empty tomb and the angel saying he has risen. When you go back and you read the story again, what you find is that Jesus has predicted his resurrection. And so you have the resurrection on the lips of Jesus. You have him saying, I will die and I will raise again. And so he's the one that tells us the end of the story. And it tells us something about what discipleship is. It's not just something to be believed and assented to. It's not a cognitive information to grasp, but it's a person to follow. And it's an unpredictable path. It's a story that if you, if you go down that path, it might change everything. Will you follow him into the dark? And will you proclaim the crucified and risen Savior? I know a little bit about... Some, about um, walking in the darkness. About 10 years ago, I was living in Peru in South America, and I spent a week up in the highlands, up in the mountains, in a village that had no running water and no electricity. And so uh, we went there as a, as a mission trip from my local Peruvian church. So it was 16 Peruvians and me um, on a trip up to the highlands. And we were going to visit this little church that had not had a visitor in five years, What happened in those five years is that a cult from a neighboring village had come by and led them astray. So we come to this little Presbyterian church, and we say, we're going to hold some revival services. We're going to preach the gospel every night. At the end of the week, we're going to celebrate communion on Sunday morning with these believers that are left here. And so that whole week, we gathered in this little church with no electricity, And we worshiped and we heard God's word by candlelight and by gas lantern. But at the end of the week, for the last night, the candles had all melted and there was no more oil for the lamps. And so we gathered to the church in darkness. And we say, where can can we get some light? Where can we get some oil for the lamp? And the whole week, as soon as we arrived, there was this village... uh, man who had kind of followed us around. His name was Mishu. And Mishu had some disabilities, but he was a a fast friend for us. And he had helped us out throughout the week. And so at that moment, Mishu says, hey, my uncle has a store up the mountain, and he has oil for the lamps. And so a friend and I start following Mishu up the mountain into the darkness and it was very dark. I had a headlamp that had, like, just a little bit of battery left on it. So every few minutes, I would turn it on just to see where we were. And we're walking into the darkness, and I say to Mishu, after about 10 minutes of walking, Mishu, ¿está cerca? Is it close? And Mishu says, sí, 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 está cerca. It's, yeah, it's close. Okay, so I walk another 10 minutes with my Peruvian friends, and we're still not there, and it's still dark. And we're higher up, deeper in to the mountain. Less light because there's more trees. And, uh, and I say, Mishu, ¿está cerca? Is it close? And he says, sí, 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 sí. está cerca. Okay, keep following this guy. Further up, deeper in. Um, and, and at this point, I'm walking across like a log over a waterfall. <laughs> and I see like, a drop off on my left, and I see the water reflecting the moonlight on my right, and I stop halfway through. And I said, Mishu, ¿está lejos? Is it far away? And Mishu says, sí, 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 está lejos. It's far away. And I turn to my friends and I say, I I think we'd be foolish to continue following Mishu. I don't think we're going to make it. And we turn around, after everyone laughed, (laughs) we turn around and we start making our way back down the mountain. And as we did, um, what we find, the closer we get, is that we can see a light in the distance. And someone had found oil for the lamps, and, and the church service had begun. And we see this tiny light flickering in the distance of this tiny little church in the highlands. And we hear the singing of people worshiping the crucified and risen Jesus. And it reminded me that as we follow Jesus into the darkness, we do it with the light of the world. Our world is dark whether we have Jesus or not, but when we follow him, when we walk into the darkness with the crucified and risen one, though we don't know what will happen, we don't know what further darkness is around the bend, we don't know how the story is going to end for our own lives, we know that we walk, to, we walk into the darkness with him. And he is the light of the world, and he will someday drive out all darkness. And so Mark is inviting us. How are you going to respond to the resurrection? Will it be in silence like the women? Or will you, like the Roman centurion, confess that this is Jesus, the Son of God, And did you notice where he was when he confessed it? He was in the darkness. It was in the moment of darkness when Jesus died that that Roman centurion saw the light. May we walk with Jesus into the darkness and may we know that we do so with the light of the world. Amen. We do so with the light of the world. Amen.